Check. One, two. All right, we're live again. Don't know how long. Thank y'all for coming. Everybody makes their way into the sanctuary. Let's stand up. Have worship.
the impression you guys like that song. I mean, you love that song. I love hearing Northside sing that song. It's always, it's always exciting. Uh, I want Jesus to come back while we're singing. That would, uh, I mean, that'd be fantastic. Uh, welcome this morning. We are glad you're here on this, uh, this beautiful Lord's Day. We're able to come together and worship him and, uh, and indeed long for his soon return. It's, uh, it's a hope of, our, hope of our hearts as followers of Jesus. We want to welcome you today. If you're a guest, know we're delighted you're worshiping with us. Hope you'll take time to tear off the side of your bulletin and uh, fill out your information on there. You can drop in the offering plate, give it to a staff member a little later today, just so we can know more about you and we can have an opportunity to tell you more about who we are here at Northside. Right now, we're going to take a moment to greet each other. If you see someone you don't recognize, go say good morning, and we're going to continue to worship together here in just a moment. Thank you. 
Right.
mountains above. Praise the mount I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. Here I raise mine Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger wandering from the fold of God. He to rescue me from danger interposed his precious blood. Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy grace, Lord, like a feather find my Heavenly Father, for this another opportunity you give us to come back out to your house to sing your praises about your unconditional and never-ending love. This morning, Father, those are hurting because of lost loved ones, comfort them in a special way. Now, Father, as we take up this offering, Father, let it be to glorify your name. For in your name I do ask. Amen.
All right. Mm, this is uncomfortable by the speaker. I got to move. That's a small seat, and I'm not a small guy. All right. How about that? I was really trying to get away from you, wasn't I? No, I need to keep my eye on you. All right. Well, good morning. Hey, I was just, uh, I was thinking through the Sunday school lesson that we just came, came out of, and um, as I was studying this week, I was just, I was just struck by something that um, maybe I knew was there, but it just, it was, it was refreshed for me this week, okay? Now, our lesson, uh, well, let me just see how many of you were paying attention. Somebody tell me something about your Sunday school lesson. What, what you got over there? You forgot, all right, well. You you got something, Eli? What? It, um, we learned our lesson. You learned your lesson. All right. That's something I like to hear at my house all the time from my children. We learned our lesson, Dad. That we learned that um, Jesus asked Peter three times, "Do you really love me?" That's right. That's right. He did. He did. And, and so before that, that Peter got over to Jesus, he said, he said something that Mr. Gene loves to say, I'm going fishing, right? He said, I'm going fishing. So he went fishing and uh, the Bible tells us it was at night. He was fishing at night, but the next morning he saw Jesus. Okay. And that's when he jumped out of the boat and he swam to shore and he was with Jesus and some really good things happened. This is what, this is what was interesting to me in the book of John. It starts out the very first couple of verses. there, talking about the light of the world that the light came into the world. And then it talks about uh, this man named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was in the dark. And it says even that he came to Jesus at night, okay? He came at night because he didn't understand the things of the gospel. And then think about when Jesus was arrested. When Jesus was arrested, it was at night. It was in, it was in the dark. But when he arose again on the third day, on that Sunday morning, it was morning. The sun was up, and it was shining, and it was, it was light. The same thing with this story here. Peter denied Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. It was nighttime, okay? It was dark. But when he affirmed that he loved Jesus, it was daylight. It was in the, it was in the, it was in the light. Listen, I've got a flashlight. Flashlights help us see things in the dark. I wonder if we could pull the lights down just a little bit, just because uh, the flashlight's not very good. It's not very useful in the daylight, is it? But uh, if, if we pull the lights down and, and then you imagine that we pull the curtains over the windows, you can see a little bit of light here, right? And light helps us see things, all right, okay? Light helps us see, right, in the dark. The Bible talks about sin like it's in the dark, and if you're in the dark and you get up at night and it's totally dark in your house, you might bump into things, you might get hurt, you can't see things very well, but you turn on the light and you can see where you're going and you can see how to get around and see what you're supposed to do. Now, I say all this, Jesus is the light. He helps us see where we're supposed to go. He helps us see how we're supposed to live our life. He helps us see uh, what we're supposed to do. And so we need to follow the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Okay? That's what, that's what the story about that, that 
the story of Peter this morning, that's what I thought about. Man, when he was in the dark, he was fishing, and he wasn't doing what Jesus wanted him to do. Now look at there. There comes the light, almost on cue. But when it was morning time and he was with Jesus, he realized, that's what I need to be doing. May not need to be fishing the rest of my life, but I need to be following Jesus. That's what I want you to do. All right? Let's pray. Father, I love the, I love the way that, that John incorporates light and darkness all throughout his gospel and, and his writings. But, Father, more than anything, I want all these children here, I want everybody in this room to follow the light that is Jesus Christ. And, in fact, he's even said he comes into our life and we become the light of the world as well. And we can help other people to follow Jesus. Lord, help us to teach the gospel. Help us to tell other people about Jesus, the light of the world that helps us see in the darkness. And it's in this powerful light's name I pray, Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand once again as we continue singing. I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered, from the curse to set me free. Sing, oh sing, of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt and made me free. I will tell the wonder story how my lost estate to save in his boundless love and mercy he the ransom freely gave sing oh sing of my redeemer with his blood he purchased me on the cross he sealed my pardon the debt and made me free. I will praise my dear Redeemer, his triumphant power I'll tell, how the victory giveth over sin and death and hell. Sing, oh sing, of my Redeemer, with his blood he purchased me on the cross he sealed my pardon paid the debt and made me free i will sing of my redeemer and his heavenly love to me he from death life hath bought me, Son of God, with him to me. <coughs> with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. Got your copy of God's Word, open it to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, I'll begin reading in verse 5. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. God, thank you so much for your word, for how it teaches and instructs us. May we listen to it carefully and heed its, uh, heed its principles. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. I am convinced that the whole daylight savings time thing was invented by godless heathens. And this is why. So in the fall at this time, you all are starving because I'm hungry right now. It's, it's well past my lunchtime right now. And, so, uh, and then in the spring, you guys are all falling asleep because you lost an hour of sleep. And so, so this was intended to disrupt church services on Sunday. I am, I am absolutely convinced and no one will ever change my mind about that. Um, also, if you paid attention to local news, actually it was more than just local news uh, this week, you may have heard about the the wonderful organization known as the Freedom From Religion Foundation. It's an organization based somewhere up in Wisconsin. They sent a letter to our Coweta County schools uh, demanding that prayer, insidious prayer, be stopped before high school football games in our county here. There is an article written at the website Coweta Score. If you follow local sports, uh, Coweta Score is a great website. It's better than the Noon and Times Herald in terms of keeping up with local sports and things like that. Uh, Coweta Score wrote a, a phenomenal article that absolutely scolds this whole, this whole process. And uh, I, I would encourage you to, to go and, and look that up. It's CoweTaScore.com. If you were to look at it and read it, it'd take you about, it's a long article, so, uh, so I'd rather you listen for me for the next 25 minutes or so and then read it later, but, um, but I would encourage you to read that because they, they did a phenomenal job of putting that in its place, and, uh, and pray, for our, pray for our school leaders. They're, they can't win. They absolutely cannot win today. They, they let things happen as they should and let people pray as they, as they like and they lose their jobs. They, they stop doing that and, and, well, we see what happens. And so, so pray for our, our school leaders as they, uh, I know Dr. Barker, uh, I think he loves the Lord, but I think he's in a difficult place in that, uh, in that he has to follow certain laws and things like that. So, so do look up Coweta Score and read their article. Uh, it's titled something about faith in our community. It's a fantastic article that you would, uh, you'd be blessed to read. You know, we have a, a habit of encountering passages in the Bible that speak about issues that we deem are no longer pertinent, and as a result of our determination that those issues are no longer pertinent, then we move on to the next interesting thing that we encounter in Scriptures. Many people would read this in, in Ephesians chapter 6 and say, why are we stopping here? Let's get to the armor of God, because that's where we're going to end up in this thing, is the armor of God, and we're going to break apart that armor and talk about the pieces of the armor so let's just get there. Well, hang tight. We'll get there next week because there's, a, there's some stuff here we need to consider before we get there. We see that this text is speaking to something that we deem generally doesn't exist anymore. And it obviously doesn't exist in the civilized West. Slavery's done. 
We have been through with slavery since January 1st of 1863 when Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. If slavery exists today, it clearly only exists in some backwater, uncivilized nation where people enslave one another to pay off debts and settle scores. In a sense, you would be right if you were to evaluate the world that way. There aren't many places in the world today where you see people participating in forced labor without pay from a human or for a human master. Now, you may feel like your job feels like slavery, but I can assure you that your job is not. Your pay, even if you deem it to not be enough for what you do, is not slavery. And we agree wholeheartedly, wholesale, that slavery is no longer a, a tolerated practice today. In another sense, though, we can't read these texts and pretend that we don't have a problem, because the reality is, is that we do. Slavery is alive and well today, and I will say that slavery today is far worse than slavery was when it was employed in the rural South to ensure the agricultural economy of the South was running at full steam. I don't endorse it at all. Of course, we would never embrace the the forced subservience of one human being to another in the form of slavery. Slavery today doesn't really help anybody's economy, however, because the most prevalent form of slavery that exists in our world today isn't about economics, it's about perversion. And while it's hard to nail down an exact figure, because obviously there's no Bureau of Slavery statistics that keeps track of these things, uh, it's estimated that there are as many as 45 million people enslaved today. Right now, currently, there's 45 million people who were enslaved in spite of the fact that slavery is universally condemned and outlawed across the globe. For comparison's sake, just so you can understand sort of the the difference here, 12 million Africans were brought to the Americas during the 200 years prior to the Emancipation Proclamation. So in the whole course of, of American slavery, we had 12 million African slaves. Today, and today alone, there are 46 million people enslaved. In the 13 colonies, there were 350,000 slaves that were imported into the, into, into the, the 13 American colonies. That's, that's the reality of the slave trade in the United States prior to the Emancipation Proclamation. Today, slaves, unfortunately, are frequently children. If those children are lucky, they end up in forced labor. The sad reality, however, is that children are being set up and used for sex trafficking and child prostitution. The overwhelming number and majority of those children who end up in slavery are being used for their bodies to be sold into slavery. And believe it or not, this isn't something that's happening in some far-off brothel in Amsterdam or some, some, some ghetto in Thailand. These realities are taking place in our own backyard. The uh, Center for Public Policy uh, Studies reports that on average, there are 100, 100 juvenile girls are exploited, exploited in Georgia each night, on average, in Georgia. Not Georgia over in the former Soviet Union, Georgia as in right here in our own county even. Likewise, the CPPS reports that 65% of all exploitation in Georgia occurs in metro Atlanta, including Coweta County. The hotels in Coweta County are some of the, some of the notorious ones for, for this stuff to take place. And just to understand, so you get a grasp of how, how big this is, exploitation 
in Atlanta is about a $300 million a year business. That's how big this is. So we can read Ephesians 6 and say, yeah, but slavery doesn't go on anymore. But it does. Not in the sense that it did in Ephesians chapter 6, however, and definitely not in the sense that it took place even in our own country and our own unfortunate past of dealing with slavery. The church today needs to understand that there is a tragic injustice that's taking place in our own backyards and it needs to be addressed. We don't need to be silent about this, this tragic thing that's taking place when there are literally children being kidnapped and forced into this terrible industry and the church of all people needs to be about rescuing these kids from this, from this tragic outcome. Let's be honest. And not pretending it doesn't happen and not turning a blind eye. So here's our problem. The kind of slavery that I just got through describing It doesn't really fit into this model that we see in Ephesians chapter 6. I can't possibly imagine the Apostle Paul telling a child trafficking victim that they're to obey their earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. I can't imagine the Apostle telling a child victim that that is their response. Unfortunately, these victims do have to obey their masters because, let's be real, their life absolutely depends on their obedience. This is a different institution that we are dealing with today than what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 6. The pimps of today's slave trade are not businessmen taking advantage of a social structure that helps them with their farm or their construction business. These, are, these, these masters that we see today are criminals of the worst kind, and they need to be brought to justice. That's the reality. For Paul, slave owners were not criminals. Slave owners in Paul's day were not criminals. And slave owners in Paul's day weren't necessarily peddling children for perverts. Slavery in Paul's day was an economic reality and it was culturally accepted. And the church, the church had to figure out how to work this out. This wasn't something that they could turn a blind eye to in that day either. It wasn't something that they could ignore and pretend that it wasn't taking place. The church had to figure this out. And so, so how, did they, how did they begin to push back the darkness on the institution of slavery? Well, pretty, pretty impressively when you stop and think about it, the, the way they got there was saying that slaves and slave owners, guess what? You're no different. That's a revolutionary statement. You're no different. In a world that was built on a caste system where there was the upper echelon, there was the the middle class, and there was the, the poor and the slave and the destitute, for the church to speak into that system and to say, hey, guess what? Slave owner and slave, you are the same. You are the same. You're in the same boat from a spiritual standpoint. Your lives may look totally different, but there is not one ounce of difference between you from a spiritual standpoint. And Paul speaks to this. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he reminds us, in a culture, in a context of contrast, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's no room for ethnic hostilities within the people of God. There's no room for, for the white Christians to have a problem with the black Christians with God's people. There's no room for that anymore in the people of God. He says there's neither slave nor free. This is revolutionary. This is saying that regardless of where you are in society's structure, the differences that separate us are purely cultural cultural and economic. They are not 
spiritual. Likewise, there's neither male nor female. Now, this is not some sort of weird endorsement of some sort of postmodern sexual revolution. It's simply saying that from a spiritual standpoint, men and women get to heaven the same way. And one is not preferred over the other. Paul is dealing with this, and he is, he is screaming to a culture that rejects this. He goes on to say, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What does he do? He goes on to tell the Ephesians that God doesn't show partiality. God doesn't show favoritism. You ever been to those amusement parks that have the, the, the fast pass things? I've stood in long, long lines, and I've watched people with those fast passes bypass the long line that I've been standing in, and I feel like a third-class citizen. Because I know that those people had to pay for that, and they paid really a whole lot for that, and there's a part of me that's jealous because I just don't have the kind of money that I can justify laying that kind of cash down for a fast pass. But, But then I'm thinking... I really am just a third-class citizen. I have to stand in this long line while they get to go to the front of the line. Can I tell you this, that in the line, proverbially speaking, whatever that line looks like, nobody gets a fast pass to get in the gates. Nobody gets to buy their way in. Nobody gets to buy access. The slave can be in front of the slave owner. The slave owner can be in front of the slave. There's no partiality. They all get to heaven the same way, and they're all parts of the same body. Now, Many people have wrongly used this passage as an endorsement for slavery. Even in our own past, we've seen people mistakenly use this passage for slavery. Well, it's not an endorsement. In fact, we see Paul working to overthrow cultural strongholds. And the first step in overthrowing those cultural strongholds is to deal with this clash of worldviews that's been brought about by the gospel. Abolitionists have always been right to condemn slavery. And can I say this? We need a new generation of abolitionists today who are condemning the slavery that's taking place today. We need people speaking today to condemn the slavery that's taking place today. But for Paul, if there's going to be slavery, it's got to work itself out just like he says here in Ephesians chapter 6. Slaves, they work hard. Not for their owners, but they work hard for Jesus. Masters, do the same. Do good. Stop threatening. If there's got to be slavery, that's a pretty good deal. Benevolent masters who, who, who love and who serve and who care for those in their, in their possession. And slaves who work hard because they're not working to please that master, but they're working to please Jesus. If there has to be slavery, that seems like a reasonable way for that to happen. Now, while it certainly is an unjust institution, what we see happening is when an unjust institution is confronted with the gospel, we can see that institution begin to be changed or replaced. I love the testimony of John Newton. You know who John Newton was. He wrote Amazing Grace, one of the cherished hymns of the the faith today. Um, John Newton was a slave owner. Uh, It wasn't just a a, a slave owner. He was a captain of a slave ship. And so John Newton wasn't just some guy who thought a lot about slavery. He was actively kidnapping Africans from Africa and bringing them to London to be involved in the slave trade. That was John Newton. 
There was a storm in 1748 that was off the coast of Ireland. His ship almost sunk. He wasn't a captain at the time. And while his ship was going down, taking on water, he prayed that God would deliver them from the storm. And some of the cargo shifted and plugged the hole where the water was coming in. The ship managed to limp itself back to shore, and he survived. As a result of that deliverance, John Newton gave his life to Christ. But guess what John Newton didn't immediately do? He didn't immediately lay down his affiliation with the slave trade. Now, he began to read the Bible, began to pray, began to be a man of God, but he didn't immediately lay down his affiliation with the slave trade. In fact, he went on to become captain of slave ships. But over time, as he began to to process and deal with this institution that he was helping to, to, to further, he began to realize that this is unjust. And John Newton, a former slave ship captain, became one of the leading abolitionists in the United Kingdom, in Great Britain, helping to make sure, helping to see the, the passage of the, of the Slave Act that, that abolished slavery in Great Britain. That, that's what happens. It wasn't immediate. It wasn't instantaneous. He didn't just jump off the boat and say, I'm leaving this for good. It took time. How many of you guys figured out your discipleship instantly? Right? You got saved and you never had any other problems, any other issues in your life. You never had any, any cross words, cross thoughts. You never had any sin. You never went somewhere you shouldn't have gone, said something you shouldn't have said, thought something you shouldn't have thought. You immediately were perfected upon your salvation. Show hands. Well, none of us. Odds are some of us have messed it up already when we looked at our alarm clock this morning. We weren't sure what time it was. John Newton didn't have it all figured out. It took time. But as the gospel began to work in his heart and he began to reflect on what he was engaged in, he would become an abolitionist. One of the the greatest. So when we see the gospel come up against these unjust institutions, we can see the gospel begin to change. And that's exactly what we see happening as a result of the church beginning to deal with this issue of slavery in these, in these old times here. Well, this morning, I, I, want, you to, I want you to think more about this than, than just be angry at modern-day slavery, which you should be. I want you to have more than just a nostalgic appreciation for how we as a people overcame this injustice in our own, in our own society. This, this needs to have more for us than, than, just a, than just these sort of feelings that we can have. Well, one thing we can take away today is, is we can see how the gospel begins to redeem things. Uh, now, some of you may not know what this is. We had a conversation when we were printing the bulletin this week that, that, that there's a chance that people under the age of 40 may not know what this is. This, ladies and gentlemen, is what's called a time clock. There was a time where when someone went to work, they were given a card, and they had to stick the card in the slot, hit that button on top, and it did something miraculous. It put a time on that card. And then when their shift was over, they would take that card, and they would stick it back in that clock, and they would hit that button, and it would put the time on the card. And something amazing happened. It would put 8, 10, 12 hours, however long your shift was, and then whoever did payroll would take that, add up the hours that you worked, and would pay you accordingly for the number of hours that you work. Today, there's swiping cards and computers and things like that. But that's what this is. This is a long time ago how people were paid. A long, long time ago. Before the rule of smartphones and before the reign of technology. We see that the gospel is something that redeems work from the fall. 
Because we don't have slavery as an institution as Paul is dealing with here in Ephesians chapter 6. We have something far more sinister today. We have to take this passage and understand what it says to us today. And I think that this is what it is speaking to us today, that the gospel redeems work from the fall. Because I believe that this speaks to us about a particular kind of work ethic that should characterize the men and women of God, whether they are enslaved or whether they are free. Now, we understand that, that work, the institution of work, was cursed as a result of the fall. Work was something that characterized the life of Adam and Eve. They weren't sitting in the garden in hammocks, sipping little fruit-filled glasses, you know, little smoothies from the trees that they could eat in the garden. They had work to do. They were told, matter of fact, that they were to chill, they were to work, they were to work the land, they were to cultivate it. And in, prior to the fall, this was to be something that was cherished, something that was to be adored, something that was to be enjoyed. All you gardeners out there, you would have loved life in the, in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall because there was never any weeds, you never dropped a drop of sweat in the ground, you never had any thistles growing in your garden, everything. Can you imagine what stuff would have grown in the garden without a lot? I mean, everybody had a green thumb. And there were only four thumbs to account for at the time, so it was easy. But if the garden, if the fall had never happened, everybody had a green thumb. Work was something that was cherished. Work was something that was fulfilling and satisfying and even enjoyable. And this is all, I always like to think what ifs. I like to think in what ifs. What if the fall never happened? What if the fall never happened? If the fall never happened, would work still have gone on? Absolutely. Work would have still happened. Society would have still developed. Things would have specialized beyond gardening, right? They would learn things beyond just gardening. As, as population multiplied, there'd be a need for somebody to figure out how to build a road to get me from here to there. Somebody would need to figure out how to, how to develop a civilization because there's a lot of folks who, who are part of this society. So work still would have taken place. There still would have been innovation. There still would have been building. There still would have been planning. All those parts of work would have still taken place. But now due to the curse, we find that work, work is now challenging. The ground would no longer produce crops with ease. And as work moves beyond growing crops and moves into other specialized areas and specialized fields, we find that work is something that is still cursed. And so what's the consequence of, of that curse? What's the consequence of this reality that work is now cursed? Well, these are two things that I think are consequences of this curse. When it comes to work, these are two prevailing consequences of our work. Laziness and greed. Both are ex opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Laziness and greed are byproducts of this curse. Here's the thing. If work is fulfilling and satisfying, laziness and greed are not a problem. If work is fulfilling and satisfying, laziness and greed are not issues because people show up for work eager to do it because it's fulfilling and satisfying. People show up for work eager to, to do it without, without worrying that they hoard everything because the work itself is fulfilling and satisfying. In Christ, we see that work is redeemed. In Christ, we see that work is redeemed. Now, Ephesians chapter 6 clearly helps us see this, this principle at work. 
When talking to slaves, Paul emphasizes that they should work as if their work is done for the Lord. And, and again, this is mind-blowing because, because our own understanding, our own concept of slavery is that, is that terrible, cruel institution of slavery where we think that a slave goes to work because the master's whip is on his back. And Paul is saying, no, don't think of, don't think of it that way. Think of your work. If you're a slave, if you're the low man on the totem pole, you need to understand that your work is not done for your master or for your master's whip. Your work is done as if it is done for the Lord. And so regardless of whatever menial task a slave is given for Paul, if he's a Christian slave, his work is redeemed. His work is redeemed. And, and people say, that's impossible. That's impossible. No, it's not. Because that's what the gospel does. The gospel redeems work. If this isn't a redemption of labor, I don't know what is. You see, if you're, if you're the slave, if you're that low man on the totem pole, so to speak, here, your first concern isn't your paycheck, your pension, or your promotion. If you're an employee, your first concern as an employee who serves and loves Jesus is not your paycheck, your pension, or your promotion. Your first concern, according to the Apostle Paul, is whether or not your work reflects the quality that it should reflect if it is an offering for the Lord. Now, what work do you do? Are you employed and you work a nine-to-five? Does your nine-to-five reflect a heart that's committed to the Lord? Maybe you're retired, and I know retired people just sit around all day and don't do anything, right? If you're retired, the work that you are freed up now to pursue, you get to do what you want to do to some extent until your health tells you you can't do that anymore. If you're retired, whatever work it is that you pursue in your retirement, does it reflect and honor the Lord? If you're if you're working a part-time job as a teenager and you, you run the cash register at McDonald's, bless your heart. Does your working the cash register at McDonald's, are you doing it as if it's for the Lord or are you doing it just so you can draw a paycheck at the end of the week? Your first concern is not your paycheck, your pension, or your promotion. Your first concern is whether or not your work reflects the quality that work would reflect if it is offered unto the Lord. Just like a slave's work is defined by his master, an employee's work is defined by his employer. So whoever your employer is, are you doing that work for his benefit or her benefit, or are you doing that work for the benefit of the Lord? And, and I believe as long as employers don't force their employees to do things that compromise their faith, then work for the Christian is an act of worship. When your employer tells you to do something that compromises your faith, then this is where you know you're not enslaved because everyone can quit. You say, Pastor, I can't quit. I can't afford to quit. Everybody can quit. You're not threatened with a whip if you quit. Everyone can quit. Is your work an offering to the Lord? It doesn't matter if that work is as insignificant as mopping the floor or as dramatic as performing a heart transplant. That work, regardless of what it is, should be done for the Lord and not for man. You see, we as Christians, we come in on Sunday and we talk about Sunday and we, we celebrate Sunday and, and a bunch of us have Sunday off. Some of you guys leave right after church and go to work because you've got a weird kind of schedule. But we, we come in and we celebrate what happens on Sunday. Here's the thing. When you leave here and go to work on your proverbial Monday, whatever that Monday is for you, that Monday is as much an act of worship as your time here on Sunday is. 
As wonderful as you guys sounded singing Days of Elijah to start our worship service off tonight, and that was a wonderful, awesome celebration of the soon return of Jesus. That was exciting. When you show up at work on your proverbial Monday morning, that Monday morning when you clock in on that weird thing that we had on the screen up there a minute ago, that work is as much an act of worship for us as our songs in church are. Because we do it not for man, not for the glory of self, not for our pension or our promotion or our paycheck. We do it for the Lord. When talking to masters, Paul's emphasis is on the temperament of the masters, obviously. For the employer, maybe you run a business or maybe you're a man in management or something. Your first concern is not the business bottom line. You say, Pastor, I run a business. Of course my first concern is the bottom line. Not if you're a Christian. Not if you love the Lord. I love when you walk in Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A has to be exalted from conversations like this because you walk in Chick-fil-A and you look, the first sign you see when you go in the door is what? We're closed on Sunday. Why? So our employees can enjoy the time of rest or time of worship, whatever, whatever it says. I don't know the quote specifically. I'm sure some of you do. They're closed on Sunday. How much money does Chick-fil-A lay down by being closed on Sunday? Now, I've offered a solution. Get the Seventh-day Adventists to run the joint on Sunday, and then uh, everybody's happy. (laughs) Call me, right? Dan, come on. (laughs) They're closed on Sunday because their first concern is not the bottom line. Their first concern is the people that work there. Guess what God does? I think he's taking care of their bottom line. Just a hunch. For the employer, your first concern is not the business bottom line. What does Paul say to the slave master? Make sure you get every ounce of productivity out of your slaves. Make sure that they are working every second of their working day. Make sure that you milk everything you can out of those slaves so you can have a profitable business enterprise. That's not what he says. He says, mind your temperament. Be good. Do good. That's what we've challenged. That's what we've challenged the slaves to do. Do good. God rewards the good. If you're a slave owner, if you're in the the master position, do good. If you're an employer, do your employees know you as a reasonable boss? Are you harsh with those who work for you? This this is gorgeous, the way that God works this out. If an employee does their work to the glory of God, and a manager does his management to the glory of God, what an incredible place to be. What an incredible company to work for. Employers, manage your employees for the Lord, not for men. Lastly, Paul warns against working for eye service or people-pleasing because this is a real tendency that we have to deal with. With all work, there is a danger of having the wrong motives. If your work is simply to please your boss or to impress the people you work with, then you've got the wrong motivation. There's a satire site on the internet called the Babylon Bee. I post a lot of their stuff on the internet because they're hilarious. They're spot on so much. And they posted a satire article this week that said employment productivity goes up 46.7% with the close of the World Series. 
because people are able to focus on their job instead of focusing on the World Series. Because here's the reality. If our work is simply to please our boss or to impress the people that we work with, then the problem is that when people aren't watching, we might be inclined to do less than, less than quality work. Maybe you've worked at a restaurant where they're only really worried about cleanliness, really, really worried about cleanliness when they know that the county inspector is coming by. I worked at a restaurant in high school, and it always seemed interesting to me that the management, when they knew the county was coming by, that they would work really, really hard to get everything spick and span for the county inspector. And I thought to myself, shouldn't we be worried about being spick and span even when the county's not coming by? But here's the thing, if we work and we manage to please people, to, 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 for, to, to, give, to give eye service to the folks that we work for, if we're tempted to do less in quality work when they're not watching, then that's really not for the Lord. It's really not. It's really not for Jesus. If you've got no one to impress, it doesn't matter. But in Christ, what we see taking place is this redemption of our labor. And so whatever our labor is, whether we are enslaved to a time clock, as many of us are, some of us have these jobs where we're enslaved to these things, and it feels good, you know, when you can lay that down and not have to answer it. Some of us are enslaved to different things. But whatever we do, whatever our calling is, whatever our vocation is, whatever our job is for this time and for this place, then our job should be done for the Lord and not for man. See, the beautiful thing about the gospel is that the gospel begins to restore all that was damaged in the fall. And one of the great things that the fall restores, or that the the gospel restores from the fall, is our work and our labor. Our work was cursed, but the gospel transforms it and redeems it, and even allows our Mondays to become as much an act of worship as our Sundays. Would you join me in prayer, please? God, I thank you for thank you for Paul's teaching that can be challenging because we don't see slavery as an institution like Paul did, and sometimes we skip this, Lord, but we see that there's some principles here for us as we go about our work, whether it's the, whether it's the chores that a child has as part of a family. He may not get paid for those chores, but those chores are an act of worship to the Lord. Whether it's a part-time job that a teenager has to help pay the insurance for his car, it's not the car that's his goal. It's doing that work, whatever it is, for the glory of God. Or whether it's a long-time career at a company. Maybe it's management or running a business. We don't get to do that for ourselves. We get to do it for the Lord. And God, I, I, I believe that if we will do this for you, You'll take care of the rest. If we'll give every minute of our time on the clock to you, you'll take care of us. If we will run our businesses and run our our, our corporations and manage our departments, indeed manage our households, in such a way that honors the people that we have working for us and sees them as image bearers of God, 
I believe, Lord, you're going to take care of our businesses and our departments and our homes. God, in a, in a separate and unrelated note, Lord, as we talked even today about the terrible things that are taking place in a culture that's perverted and depraved, God, help us to have voices to speak out against that which is taking place in our world today. May we look for organizations that are seeking to, to rescue some of these 45 million people and be part of that and make a change in the lives of those that, whose lives are being destroyed right here in our own community. Father, I pray if there's any here today that aren't followers of Jesus, that they would see that the gospel does more than just clean up their, their, their faith. It does more than just fix the sin in their life. It begins to redeem things. And one of those beautiful things that it redeems is our work. God, thank you for this time today. May you move now as we, as we conclude our service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I'm going to give you the opportunity today to put your faith and trust in Christ. Come down front. You say, Pastor, I want to give my life to Jesus. Today's the day for you. So let's stand together and sing, and you respond as the Lord would lead. Whosoever heareth shout, shout the sound. Spread the blessed tidings all the world around. Tell the joyful news wherever man is found. Whosoever will may come. Whosoever will, whosoever will. Send the proclamation over hail and kneel. Here's a loving father calls a wanderer home. Whosoever will may come. It's been good to worship Jesus Day, amen? Read your bullets and pay attention to the announcements. We are getting into the holiday season, and you'll notice a very prominent announcement about our Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, last year, we tweaked that a little bit, and it was an it was a incredible tweak. We did it right after our morning worship service, and we had it in here. We worshiped around tables. We had the Lord's Supper, and we feasted together. It was a great, great day, a great celebration of God's provision, and so we're going to do that again this year. Uh, read that announcement, and there's a sign-up sheet out in the foyer to put your name down there. Uh, you can kind of get the information there, so we're excited about that. Also, you'll note that uh, there's an announcement about Operation Christmas Child. We're going to be doing that. The good news is you don't have to bring those boxes in during National Collection Week. If you follow it, you'll hear about National Collection Week. We're going to be taking some folks up to the, the distributions or the collection center and, uh, and work on processing those boxes there. And so we actually get until the first, I guess, the first Sunday in December to bring those boxes in. So you've got a little extra time to put those together. Um, we actually saw as a church the impact those shoe boxes make in July when they're being distributed by churches in these, in these countries like we saw in Ecuador. Uh, and so, so we see God doing great things with that, and we, we are eager to be part of that. As I said, read your bullets and pay attention to everything therein, and uh, we look forward to seeing you guys when we come back together again. Uh, let's see. Paul Johnson, would you mind dismissing us in prayer, please? Let's pray. Dear Lord, thanks for letting us come together and worship you and... Uh... Sing songs of praise with inspiring uh, lines like, Jesus sought me as a stranger. And the day that uh, death was arrested and my life began. We also, uh, I just uh, realize I'm guilty of uh, work, worrying about pensions and paychecks. I pray that this week we could all, uh, whether we were at work or at school, 
just help, uh, help us to do what we do for you. Just thank you so much for all you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.